Sociology of the Family was a lecture hall of over 200 students at UVA. And when we were learning about the progression of the nuclear family, my professor asked our class to participate in a little bit of engagement. If you believe that sex before or outside of the traditional holdings of marriage is wrong, please stand up, he said. So of the 200 students, 10 of us stood up, which was met by snickering and even a snarky and deriding remark from our professor. We're regarded as foolish for holding on to old-fashioned and archaic religious morals. But what the class didn't know quite yet was that as Christians, we affirm and we value sex as one of the greatest and most beautiful gifts that we could ever partake in this life, but only within the covenant of sacred marriage. There is not one instance in all of God's word where God advocates for sex outside of a marriage relationship between husband and wife. Not once. Sex is a great and beautiful thing. And God gave us our sexuality for us to focus our romantic joy and to unleash our romantic joy. Um, Pastor D.L. told me earlier this week as we were discussing the sermon that fire in a fireplace gives you warmth and heat. It's good for you. But fire in your hands will kill you or burn your house down. And so context is king. So good morning. Uh, welcome to church. We're going to talk about lust and sex, which is, I'm sure, what you're anticipating to hear from today at church. But if, what I want to ask you guys, if you were in this lecture hall with me years ago, would you stand? And even if I asked this question this morning, would you stand? To believe and to say that sex outside of marriage is wrong. The biggest lie when it comes to sex that our world preaches is that sex can be enjoyed outside of God's ordained marriage. And the second lie that goes along with it is that sex is not a big deal at all. The very mention of the words lust and sex is enough to make us blush or feel uncomfortable in our seats. So strap in because we're going to explicate and find out what Proverbs has to say about these issues for us. You might feel uh, very uncomfortable discussing sex in the church context. However, what I want to submit to you this morning is that we are inundated and bombarded daily with messages and lessons and truths about sex from our phones, entertainment, the media, and especially our culture. And if we as a church fail to define sex through a biblical lens, then culture will define it for us, which is what we see a lot today in this next generation of youth students. If the, we have to discuss sex more in the church, whether it's at house church or in our accountability groups, in our discipleship relationships, it has to be said and stated and applied to our lives. Kevin DeYoung says that when it comes to sexual morality, sin looks normal, righteousness looks very strange, and the church actually looks just like everyone else. So my question for us this morning as we go into what lust is, God has made us. He's formed us with an innate desire for attraction, for sexual desire, and for a sexual drive. And these are very, very good and beautiful things. God created this in us before the fall occurred. God himself is actually the most sexual being. He takes immense and the highest delight in pleasure and in beauty and intimacy. And he wants, out of the goodness of his heart, to share that gift with us. 
But sin and the fall has distorted sex and has made it for us, taken out of its rightful context, into a struggle with lust. So lust is a strong craving, an overwhelming desire for immediate self-gratification that opposes God's holy will and is taken outside the confines of marriage. Lust distorts and defiles what is beautiful because it, it fundamentally is selfish for us and it focuses on the immediate. Lust wants more because it never has enough. It steals joy by creating an endless desire and cycle of discontentment, knowing that we don't have the next thing yet. Lust is never happy because, frankly, it's never full. It corrupts our desires, not just in what we want, but also in the fact that we want it too much and inappropriately. Paul David Tripp summarizes it this way, that a good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes a ruling thing and dominates our lives. So Proverbs, we are in the midst of a series about wisdom seen through the book of Proverbs, and it teaches us that lust is a formidable foe and a universal and pervasive threat that we all face. We all have faced, we are facing, and we will face the temptations to lust and sexual immorality. All of us, no exceptions. Every one of us has a heart and a proclivity that is bent towards sexual sin. And so my question for you this morning that I want you to ponder upon, not considering other people and their struggles, but to have an honest introspection, asking the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, would you reveal to me where in my heart does sexual immorality or struggles with lust surface? Does it come out and surface in pornography or in premarital sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend? Does it come out in extramarital affairs or are fantasizing or dreaming about wanting to be married to someone else than the spouse we were married to or in the fantasies coming out from erotic novels? Or maybe it's experiencing sex with the same gender. How have sexual temptations outside the healthy boundaries of marriage robbed you of a joy and satisfaction that you find in your spouse or in Christ? This morning we'll hear what Proverbs says on the wisdom of sex and the foolishness of lust. So the title of this sermon is The Foolishness of Lust because foolishness in false worship distorts sex to become merely debased to lust. We have three thoughts. The first one is that lust actively hunts you down. And this is what we're going to see as we go into the book of Proverbs from three chapters, from five to seven. We're going to read of a very detailed depiction first in chapter seven of lust, who is personified as a woman, just like wisdom was personified as a woman. But lust is a prostitute who seduces young men. Notice what it says in this passage as she tracks down actively, hunts down the naive and the reckless and the innocent. Through these verses, we can discover three observations about lust's preferred method of hunting down her prey. So the observations of lust, uh, we see that there is indication about lust's timing and location. Second, that there's lust's advances are very methodical. And third, that lust's speech is very seductive. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Proverbs chapter 7, but the verses will also be on the screen if you want to look. Um, so reading from chapter 7, verses 8 and 9, we first see the first observation. Passing along the street near her corner, the young man is taking the road to her house. In the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. 
Notice the exact pronouns that are used. The man is approaching her corner, taking the road to her house. Lust lures a young man out of his home and the context of his community where he might be with his spouse into her realm. Years ago, before the modern era, before we had any technology, if we wanted to indulge ourselves sexually, we would have to go to a place, a geographical place in town to indulge in a secret way. But that's not the case anymore because we don't have to go far except reach into our pockets, to our phones. Notice also the timing too. The three words that Solomon uses are evening, night, and darkness. In Psalm 104, David speaks of how God has made and made boundedness to our time, where in the daytime we labor. And at night, David says that the beasts come out, of the, out into the to, to darkness to terrorize. And so it's in the state of when it's dark, when we're in isolation, when we're tired and fatigued and maybe can't think straight, that we are preyed upon in our vulnerabilities. The second observation uh, comes from lust's advances. And that comes from the following verses in verse 10. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wildly of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home, but now in the street, now in the market, and every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I've paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. The words that Solomon uses to describe her advances, she's loud and flamboyant. She doesn't stay at her home, but she goes to the common area. So not only is a man going towards her, but she is out looking for him. In the common areas, the streets, the marketplace, in every corner, there is an intentional anticipation as it says she lies in wait. And then she forces herself on him by seizing him, kissing him and expressing her intentionality and coming out to him, making him feel special. And that's the lie that lust gives to us. We don't have to look very far to find her, but she makes us feel like we are special, like we're the only one there. And she expresses that she's achieved her goal when she's found him. And the third observation we see about lust that's personified here is lust's seductive speech. Verse 18, it says, Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, as she says as she entices him. For my husband is not at home, but he has gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him, and at full moon he will come home. So with much seductive speech, she persuades him, and her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to a slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. The woman's speech is flattering, but it's filled with deceit. She entices him with promises of lasting pleasure and safety because her husband is gone and won't become returning for a long time, so he can take the ample time he wants with her. It's a seductive and smooth talk that she allures him, but Solomon makes it clear, such talk inevitably leads to slaughter, being entrapped and ensnared. And in the end, it costs him his life. Um, many of you are familiar with Greek mythology. Uh, this is the story of the Odyssey, and this is the only appropriate photo I could find on Google Images. So uh, it's this, this Lego uh, depiction of um, 
the general Ulysses or Odysseus is returning home from his voyage after um, sacking Troy. And instead of a quick journey home, he and his sailors take a 10-year journey round trip to return to their homes. And in the process, they encounter many adventures. And one of them is to encounter and pass through the Straits of the Sirens. The Sirens are mythical creatures that are they're shown as beautiful women who have very beautiful, mellifluous voices. And as they sing to sailors who pass by, the sailors cannot help but lose their reason, and they come to the sirens, crash their boats, and the sirens de- descend upon them and eat them. So Ulysses is, is aware of this, and so what he does is he plugs his sailors' ears to make sure that they are not hearing their voices, as he himself is tied to the mast, smiling, and they make it through the strait as he guides his sailors successfully through the strait. Now, what Ulysses sees, as it says in the Odyssey, is that he sees these women who are beautiful in form and have beautiful voices, and he, with all his might, tries to talk his sailors of freeing him from the mass. But his sailors don't see the same thing. What they see are monstrous creatures with long, voracious appetites and long claws. We don't have to travel on long trips on ships to find the sirens of our day because they exist in our pockets or just a text away. The problem of the the sirens of our day now come primarily through pornography and other ways that our culture has relegated sex. 90% of all porn is accessed through a smartphone in 2020. And these are uh, statistics provided by the Barna study and also the Pew Research Institute. The sad truth, unfortunately, for the American church is that the American church virtually reflects and mirrors the national average with very little discrepancy and sometimes is even worse in some areas when it comes to pornography. This is one area that I want to bring up because it is not just for men, but as we see, it's a struggle for everyone. It's a universal struggle. 64% of men and Christian men in the U.S. view pornography at least once a month, and that is also met by 33% of women in the U.S., of which 15% of Christian women in the U.S. view porn monthly. 18% of all men in the U.S. would claim and agree that they have an addiction to pornography that is overwhelming. That's 21 million young men or old men in the United States. 35% of all downloads on the Internet are pornographic-related. Um... One of the leading porn sites that we have uh, receives more traffic than Amazon, Twitter, and Netflix combined. More than half of women under the age of 25 have intentionally sought out porn, and 81% of male teenagers have sought out porn intentionally. And in the rise of the phone, we see that sexting, or which is sending illicit photos or videos to friends, has... 62% of teens have received one by the time of graduation, and 41% of teens have sent a picture by the time of graduation. In 1998, 3,000 sexually explicit photos of minors were reported. Ten years later, in 2008, the number soared past 100,000 reports. In 2014, that number broke 1 million, and last year, reports broke 52 million. The average age to be introduced to pornography is now at the age of nine. It used to be 13 10 years ago, but that number is sharply declining in its average. Not only is porn pervasive, but now with the prevalence of porn, 
it has changed our view and perspective of pornography. So from the Barnard Institute, we see that viewing, the more ambiguity with porn is that most adult, about half of adults above the age of 25 would agree that pornography is morally wrong. Now with the younger generation, only a third of them would agree the same. With the younger generation too, they would say that recycling, not recycling, I'm sorry, is more of a crime or more immoral and wrong than watching pornography. Porn and sexting are equivocally wrong. These percentages are not excuses or permission slips for us to engage in them. But I just wanted to highlight how pervasive it is and how a lot of us probably here struggle with it. And so that brings us to what's an interesting cycle called the sexual addiction cycle that we see in today's world. And so a leading psychologist who's not a Christian came up with this um, cycle that I'm going to try to explain. We all are wounded selves. We are people who had innocence at one point, not a lot of knowledge about sexuality or sex, and we were introduced at some point in unhealthy ways. Our parents hopefully tried to explain some, but we've learned a lot through friends and through inappropriate jokes or pornographic material. That leads to an addiction cycle if we get caught in it. So what happens if, if there's a triggering event, a triggering event can be something like uh, a daily occurrence or routine, like a fight with a spouse, stress at work, loss of money and financial stress. The problem is that the addict fails to recognize and name and healthily deal with their emotions and feelings when it comes to stress. And because of that, they're stuck in a reality that needs to be relieved. And so a lot of that times, they find the relief biologically to come through sexual addiction. So at the same time, they have a preoccupation that forms. Well, if I am stressed, then the way to relieve it is through my sexual fantasies and addictions. And so the reality of their lives is being replaced, and already at this point, the addict's mood is altered. There are already hormonal change, changes at the thought of the preoccupation of this fantasy, which leads to the next part of the cycle, which is the ritual. And this can be done in different ways. If it's soliciting prostitutes, it's going to the ATM and taking out cash. If it's watching pornographic material, it's opening up your web browser to look at the website or to download an app that allows you to connect with other people. It's part of um, a ritual that we're familiarized with unconsciously, which then leads to acting out, which is the end goal of the ritualization and preoccupation. At this point, it's almost near impossible to stop unless it's met by an equally astounding and shocking triggering event. The addict is unable to stop their behavior at this point and is powerless, which leads them to a, a deep gutter of despair and shame where they make promises, where like, I will install covenant eyes on my computer, or this is the last time we'll have an affair with this woman or man. All this to say is that to get out of the cycle, what a psychologist has, has learned through their studies is that by the time you've hit the preoccupation phase, it's almost 95 to 99% are gonna, probability that you're going to go through the whole cycle. And so unless we can cut it off there, we're just going to continue with it. One of the most profound and impacting books that I have read outside of Scripture is Jay Stringer's book, Unwanted, which came out a couple of years ago. And what his thesis is in this book, which I'd highly recommend for all of us to read, Stringer says that to understand and to fight sexual desires and temptations that are unwanted, 
we don't have to find better strategies to fight them. Our goal is to understand the source and the root of these sexual desires that are unwanted. And so he invites us to engage with our stories to the very beginning. A lot of the times where it's come from dysfunctional families that leads to us to have these unwanted sexual desires and drives. And here with the the original wound, it's not random, but it's a feeling of shame, a feeling inadequate. It leads us to a place where we do feel adequate. Like Adam and Eve, we all desire sinfully. But the original wound that we experienced, the wound itself, it's important to name our stories because once we're curious about the original place that we have our sin stemming from, we're able to meet it head on with the redemptive love of Christ. So what does this mean for you and for me? And we have to be keenly aware, as Proverbs says, about the spatiality and the timing of lust, the advances of lust and the deceitful speech of lust. The first characteristic of lust is that it's very deceitful. It never delivers on what it promises. It offers great satisfaction, but every time it ends up in disappointment. It claims to be real living, but in the end it leads to a very real death. So here are some lies I'm going to share that I thought of that lust speaks to us to get us to get into this addiction cycle. It will tell us things like, you deserve this after all the stress you've had or the good week that you've had. We've already gone too far as a couple. What would it matter if we went, we did it again? Or it's your body. You can do with it whatever you want. As long as it's consensual, it's fine. You only have to watch a little bit, but you can turn it off whenever you want to. Just one more time. If this doesn't hurt anyone, why should we not, why should we stop this? Other lies are like, you need to experience to know what, how to do in the future. Or everyone is doing it, and people are doing worse things, so why not? Or another one could be, I need an outlet for my sexual desires and drives, so this is healthy for me. But the fundamental lies that we believe is that the pleasures that lust promises is far superior than the pleasures that God promises. We see and we take for granted and we cheapen grace when we see that God is gracious and forgiving and as a result, we can engage with how we want because we think there won't be consequences. And then the shame isolates us. It tells us that we're the only ones who struggle with this. And that if we brought this before our community or our loved ones or our church, we would definitely be ostracized, so it's best to deal with this alone. We have to take radical steps to make sure we put an end to sin. Every time we indulge in pornography or in our sexual morality and our lust and addictions to lust, we deny the precious gospel truth that every man and woman possesses dignity inherently, not to be solicited or sold for sex. In this year alone, when we've experienced a lot of upheaval politically and socially, we look back at the pre-Civil War era when Christians or other Americans justified slavery. But we are dangerously close to being like them when we visit pornographic sites because we are okaying and tolerating sexual slavery. Porn pollutes the mind. It hinders our spiritual growth. It causes us to live in fear and shame. It kills the conscience. It becomes an addiction, and it causes us to sin with our heart, mind, and body. God designed sex to be relational, but porn is lustful. God designed sex to be covenantal, but porn is noncommittal. God designed sex to be intimate, but porn is superficial. 
God designed sex to be selfless, but porn is self-centered. And God designed sex as a complex union, but porn is self-isolation. And so my question for you this morning, maybe this applies to you, maybe it doesn't, but for an honest introspection, how are you in your struggle with pornography or illicit material and entertainment and what's on your phone? Is sexting or watching things that are not good for you, is that a struggle for you or is it a daily beatdown and a pummeling that you experience every day? How is your purity with your boyfriend or girlfriend? Do you find sex to be casual as our crazed hookup culture says it is? Pornography has destroyed a lot of my life as a young man. And it's taken a lot from me. And for years I dealt with this sin. And the scariest moment that I've experienced in my battle with pornography was not the day that I was found out by anyone, but it was the day when I no longer felt the guilt after watching porn because I had become so numb and so desensitized to the sin that the Holy Spirit no longer spoke to me in this area. <laughs> Understanding the seduction of lust, what we see next are the consequences of lust in our lives. This leads us to our second thought, that lust, the way of lust, is sinful and always leads to destruction. The way of lust is sinful and always leads to destruction. And this comes from Proverbs chapter 5 and 6. So we're going to look at these two passages together, side by side, um, where Solomon is giving his son wisdom about how to keep away and to how to fight the temptations of lust. So let me read it for us. First from um, Proverbs chapter 5, he says, uh, let's see, verse 8 through 11. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And later in chapter 6, verse 27 and on, it says, Can a man carry a fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. He who commits adultery lacks sense, and he who does it destroys himself. So maybe we're naive in our thinking, like Michael Scott at the beach when he walks upon hot coals to prove himself. But the young man in and all of us, we need to be told the consequences of sexual folly. The pain experienced through lust is inevitable with egregious losses that chapter 5 states. The plea there is for us to remove ourselves and stay far from her house. Instead of coming spatially near, we are to keep away. Solomon warns that the failure to comply with this results in the loss of honor for ourselves and honor that can be given to our spouse, as well as strength for our body, time and years, and the work of our hands. What Solomon is saying is that every sphere of our lives is desecrated by lust. Wisdom tells us not to even carry fire near to our chest. And what wisdom is saying is that our self-control, our resolve, our determination is, doesn't hold a candle to the beast of lust when we come near to it. In the end, as we saw with the sexual addiction cycle, it results in the destruction and the cycle again. So to be clear, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 25, Paul expounds this further. When he talks about sexual immorality is a result of us worshiping not the creator, but the creation itself and other people and ourselves especially. 
And as a result of worshiping the creation through sex, what we see is that there are unnatural tendencies that result. And so he uses lesbianism as an example. When women were engaging in sexual acts that was outside of the nature of how God ordained it to be. The wrath of God that's experienced there is not that God sends fire and brimstone to these people, but rather the wrath of God that's formalized is God allows for these people to continue their sin without him intervening. That's the judgment. And that's the judgment that could occur like for you, for me. If we continue to live in the cycle of sin with pornography or sex, God, the, the scary thing is that God may not intervene. And he will allow us to, he will give us fully up to our desires. And that's the scariest scenario and reality for us. Sex outside of marriage is sinful. The world will tell us that it's not a big deal, that it's casual, that if it feels good for you, it's good for you, or if it's, if it's healthy, it's a good way to express ourselves. But what it fails to do is to look at the standard that Scripture supplies. Sex beyond marriage is to give ourselves fully, physically, to another person, but to withhold ourselves emotionally and spiritually from their lives. That's why we feel so fractured and fragmented after we have one-night stands or we sleep with our boyfriend or girlfriend. It's because we have not engaged and have committed in a covenant of marriage to, our, to the person that we have slept with. Every outlet of sexual expression outside of marriage becomes a sin when we don't have it in the view of God as God has ordained it to be. In Virginia, uh, where my family and I live, we live in a forest with 10 acres of land, and we don't have a lot of central heating, so we heat our home with a fireplace. So that involves us cutting down a lot of trees each year in winter. Now, as I'm starting to cut down trees in the forest, I notice a lot of things about nature. And you'll see oak trees that have fallen over, but not for the cause that you would think. So enter the strangler vine. This is a parasitic vine that wraps around tree trunks and takes advantage of the nutrients and water that the oak tree or the big tree pulls up from the ground. It plants near the, the tree, wraps around itself around the trunk, and at first it's a very small sapling. But as it constricts around the trunk, the tree uses more, first, more force to exert the water and nutrients from the ground, which the parasite gladly takes up. And in the end, when it has starved the tree, the tree falls. And so at its full growth, like in this picture, you'll see that the tree actually indents and strangles the tree itself. Trees that have stood the test of time through hurricanes and weathers for decades are brought down because no one was able to remove the small sapling of a parasite from its life. Just like the strangler vine, we have something like that in our lives, and it's called lust. It can be porn, whatever we have. It might appear cute or innocuous or benign or something that we're curious about. But if we don't eliminate it from our lives, it will be the end of us. No matter how strong we've stood with the Lord, it will be the end of us. I've sat across tables from old men who have lived many years ahead of me, and they will look at me with tears and plead with me, if you are watching pornography as a young man, please stop. Because it has destroyed three of my marriages, and I have no relationship with my family and kids. As young people, we need to hear those stories of the consequences of sin in our lives. For too often, we treat ourselves that we know what's best. But in reality, we allow the strangler vines to wrap up around our lives. So I also have a flip phone. Uh, 
I live in the dark ages. I have a potato for a phone. And these are all the phones I've had since my freshman year of high school. Um, the reason why, secondarily, is because like, I don't want to get distracted from school, but primarily because this is my way of taking my cross to deny porn in my life and submitting over my life. I understand that I don't have good self-control. I think a lot of other people do, but I don't. And I know the temptation is right there. And so I choose to have a, sm- a flip phone because I think for the incredible inconvenience that it adds to my life, it reflects a lifestyle and years of repentance that I want to have. Porn has destroyed so much of my life. Maybe it's the same for you. And my question for you this morning is, how badly do you want to be set free? Is it enough to incredibly inconvenience your life in repentance? Because if you and I are not desperate to change and to break free from this lifestyle of sin and addiction, we'll stay here forever and it will get worse slowly. In battling lust, we often use and employ these ineffective strategies of more willpower, more determination, more accountability, putting money in a jar or slapping ourselves if we do so, so fall. But John Piper says, the only sinner who can successfully battle his sins is a justified sinner. Your fight against sexual sins from relation, your fight against sexual sins comes from relationship, not for relationship. What he's saying is like, we don't fight sexual sins so we can get closer to Jesus. We are closer with Jesus and therefore we get to fight sexual sins in a better way. We need to know how good it feels to be truly loved and truly known for who we are. Until we are radically sure that we are loved and lovable, we will never be free from the insatiable desire to find beauty in things of this world. Changing externalities in our circumstances, like installing covenant eyes on our computer or getting a flip phone, are good things and helpful, but it's not salvific. It has to come from a heart of repentance, because repentance cherishes something much greater than anything that this world promises in pleasure. When we repent, we pray for wisdom, a wisdom that our heart can discern right from wrong. Tim Keller says that wisdom is knowing the right decision to make, the right course of action to take, in the majority of life situations that morals may not address fully. The tide of the war against porn or lust in your life will begin and it will shift when you grasp forgiving and transforming grace as you learn to repent. The sobering truth is that you and I do not possess any resources inside of ourselves or outside of ourselves with our friends to change ourselves and our desires. Jesus' grace is the only thing to change you, and it's stronger than pornography's power to destroy you. That's the living hope that we have. Jesus' grace is stronger than your desires to have sex. But until God is your chief concern and your chief joy in life, until sinning against him is what makes your heart break, you will never turn the tide. Not knowing God and not loving God fully is the root cause of our lust. And one thing I want to say is, after we've gained this, Proverbs does teach us about the practicals. Because it's not, if it's just the heart and the mind, it has to follow through with our lifestyle and obedience. So several things that we see, uh, first Proverbs tells us to run. So five R's, run is the first one, to avoid, to flee from this area. He, Proverbs knows that we're not, we're not strong enough to face the onslaught of temptation. We must stay close to biblical teaching and away from sexual temptation. The second R is to repent. Being the youth director of our church and having a lot of conversations with our youth students, it's very, very few that I've ever encountered students who are grieved about their sin. 
that's like one thing that we don't get as a, as a young generation that the older generation does get is the idea to mortify and grieve our sins. Because as a, as a young generation, we have too low of a view of sin and too low of a view of God. Sin no longer grieves our hearts, but it has to. It has to be a daily mortification of repentance and prayer. And one thing I would invite you to do, if, if you are struggling with sexual temptation and pornography, read Psalm 51 every day for a month. Because even if you read the same passage, God speaks to you in different ways. This past summer, as I was going through my sexual temptations, I, was, I, I just said I had enough. And so I took 40 days to just completely remove myself from anything that would open me up to suggestive material. And I even took the extent to not talk to any girls or females of any kind because in that way I wouldn't want to be tempted and I only want to hear the voice of Jesus. It takes radical change after a radical heart change to find freedom in Christ. The third R is to resolve. We see this in Daniel when he came to Babylon. He resolved not to defile himself with the wrong food as well as with Job in Job 31.1 that he says, I resolved to not look lustfully at a woman. There has to be a change in our hearts, a change in our lifestyle, a change of our thinking. Um, the fourth R is to radically change our lifestyle to not sin. Do whatever it takes. If it means changing to a flip phone and having people mistake you for being a drug dealer at the gym, that's fine. But do whatever it takes to find freedom because your life is, more, is worth so much more than a phone. And the last R is to remember Scripture memorization is another gift that we have lost as a generation. To memorize whole passages or chapters, and when temptation comes with all those lies that we saw on the screen earlier and bombards us, that's the time that we get to pull it out and to preach and to teach and to have our hearts listen to the scriptures that we have learned from before. When we hide the truth in our hearts, the whole book of Proverbs 5, 6, 7, talks about when Solomon says, hide these truths in your heart, wear it around your neck, have it with you always. Because if you fail, if you forget you will fail and you will die. Psalm 119.9 says, how can a young man keep his way pure? As if in a conversation dialogue with Proverbs chapter 5-7, through seven, and he says, by guarding it with all of your heart, according to your word. Um, Pastor John Piper has several, oh, he has this acronym that's really helpful, Anthem. Um, I won't go through all of it, um, but it says, avoid at all costs, say no, emphatically and verbally, turn to the gospel, um, to Christ, the beauty of his grace, seek the things above, and then hold to the vision of Christ. In Galatians 6, 9, we do not grow weary in doing good, but we hold Christ as a supreme value and joy of our lives. E is for enjoy. Enjoy a lifestyle of cultivating pleasure in Christ. Christ has so little appeal to us that we will try willpower religion above pleasure in Christ. In Psalm 1611, it says, in the presence of God is the fullness of joy and our pleasures forevermore. The reason why we don't experience pleasure with Christ is because we don't worship well with Christ. And the last one is move. Don't coast in life. Be active. Whenever we're, as I said at night, nighttime is when we're tempted a lot. That's the same case for us. When we're inactive and we're tired, so be active. Preoccupy yourself. Ephesians 2.10 says that we were created for good works. The last thought that we have is that marital love, not lust, gives fulfillment to sex. Marital love, not lust, gives fulfillment to sex. 
This comes from Proverbs chapter 5, verses 15 and 19. It's pretty graphic and erotic in its description, but it's intentional because it teaches something uh, to us about marital love. So chapter 5, verse 15. Solomon says, Drink water from your own cistern and flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the, fa- the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always in her love. The idea of the fountains and the cistern and wells is a euphemism for the body parts that are engaged with sex. And Solomon's not bashful about it. I mean, he writes a book about it later too, a Song of Solomon's. But what he's saying is that Proverbs, what he's saying is turn to something greater, which is your spouse. He asserts that we must keep our eyes off of every woman or every other person, but keep our hands on our spouse. In a very erotic and explicit language, sexual wisdom says to satisfy our thirst through sex with our spouse. And God's remedy for our sexual desires is sex itself in a good and healthy way. We are to enjoy the beauty of our married spouse. Solomon charges us to actually be intoxicated and filled with love for our, our, our beloved. If the young man, if you and I, if we're not captivated by our wife or husband, then we will be captivated by something or someone else. God commands us to drop our inhibitions with our spouse. To rejoice in the wife of our youth means to rejoice, means to praise, to value, to appreciate the other, to cherish, and to call and discipline to take joy in the body of our beloved. Marriage is important because it doesn't, it's not predicated upon feelings and passion, because feelings and passion will fade. That's why we make marriage vows, because in the good times and the bad times, in the mundanity of life, we promise to always be covenant to them, faithful to them, to love them, even when things go awry in their body, outside or inside, we know that there is beauty in the love that we have for one another. This is the proper channel for sexual drive. So here's the crazy thing. The four biggest words, the four most important words for us for sex and lust is in the beginning, God. Because in the beginning, God created us to have the sexual drive. And when sin distorted it, when we have sex or engage in sexual immorality with porn or our boyfriend or girlfriend or our affairs, what we do is we are worshiping ourselves in a way that was not meant to worship. We are engaging in the same sin that Paul says in Romans 1, that we are worshiping creation, not the creator. But when we have sex in the confines of marriage, in the beautiful relationship that God has ordained and blessed, that, that worship of ourselves actually turns into worship of God. And it's in sex with our husband or our wife that we experience joy and intimacy with God. We know God more through our sex with our spouse. I know that this is speaking to a very direct audience that most of us here aren't, like, it's not relevant to, uh, me included. So what is it like, like not all of us are, getting, are called to be married and not all of us will get married. And a lot of us, most of us here are single. It's frustrating to have these sexual desires and no healthy outlet to play it out. What Solomon says and the scripture says, which is kind of frustrating but still true, is that our singleness is meant to point to a need that only Christ can fulfill and satisfy. And even though we're not married, yes, we are married to Christ. 
And what Jesus wants us to do is in our singleness, we are called to find the intimacy and joy and pleasure in Christ alone first. And whether he brings a spouse or not, that, that comes with time. But for all of us, we will, be married, we will be single for most of our lives. We're single for most of our lives. We get married. One of us passes away. We're single again. And so we have to learn how to be content in Christ, in our singleness. Proverbs 18.22 says that he who finds a wife finds a treasure. He receives a gift from the Lord. And that's something that we get to cherish and treasure in our relationship with one another. There's a um, pretty fun, very cliche Christian movie called Courageous. And um, this cop, he takes his daughter out on a date as she is being kind of called upon by a boy from high school. And she's falling for him, and he tells her, hey, listen, guys these days, they know how to win your heart, but they don't know how to cherish it. And that's the same for us. Sex promises, lust promises to win our hearts over, but it doesn't cherish our souls. It doesn't care an ounce for our souls. But there is one who does. Marriage is a solution because it points to a greater thing, which is a spouse, as, Pro- as Proverbs says. But marriage itself is an analogy for something greater because it points to the greatest thing of all, and that's Christ. Marriage is a metaphor. Marriage is God's creation pointing towards something beyond us, to a mega romance between Christ and his church, as beautiful and ugly as she is. Ultimately, all of this is glorifying God. God designed marriage not to satisfy our needs primarily, but to glorify him through the portrayal of Christ and his church, of Christ and you. In marriage, a dignified man and a dignified woman are molded in the image of their maker. Two people who are uniquely unique complement each other, a male and female in a physical bond where the deepest point of difference is found at the greatest point of their unity. Marriage marks unity and diversity, equality with variety, and personal sanctification through shared consummation. Marital love is what reverses the effects of lust. The desire of lust is to get, but the desire of love is to give. Lust seeks to only bring bring pleasure, but marital love brings pleasure that there can be transformation. Lust always leads to death, but in the analogy of marriage, there was one who died so that we all could live. Lust crucified a man to a tree for our sins, for our sake. But love allowed himself to be crucified for you and for me. Lust climbs up a tree to strangle someone. Lust, or love himself, allowed himself to be strangled on a tree for us. Lust is fleeting, but God introduces his said love, his long-suffering love for you and I. In marriage, we make our vows because our passion for the other person is unreliable, but love is a decision to be committed Peter Hyatt says that marriage is a sneaky way for God to get you crucified. It's a way for you to be sanctified and more like him. And crucifixion is, a sneaky, is God's sneaky way of giving you real life. I used this analogy before, but I wanted to highlight it again. Dr. Robertson McQuilkin was the president of Columbia International University, where my parents attended for seminary um, way back in the day. While he was serving as president, He was also caring for his beloved wife, Muriel, who was suffering from eight years of advanced stages of Alzheimer's disease. That year, as he was contemplating whether he should step down from his role to care for his wife, he also lost his eldest son in a car accident. He struggled. 
was he to continue shepherding the seminary, serve as president, and raise the next generation of pastors? Or was he to step back to his, from his esteemed career to care for his wife? McCulkin realized that God wanted him to put first responsibility of marriage, and he prayerfully decided to resign from his accomplished career in 1992, writing this in his resignation speech. My dear Muriel has been in failing mental health for about eight years. So far, I've been able to carry both her ever-growing needs and my leadership responsibilities, but recently it has become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time she is with me and almost none of the time I'm away from her. It is not just discontent. She is filled with fear, even terror, that she has lost me and always goes in search to find me when I leave home. The walk to school is a mile-round trip. She would make that trip almost 10 times a day, resulting in bloody feet when she forgot to put on her shoes. So it is clear to me that she needs me now full-time. The decision to resign as president was made, in a way, 42 years ago, when I stood with her at the altar and I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. Integrity has something to do with it, but so does fairness. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic, so there is more. I love Muriel. She is a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love and occasional flashes of the wit I used to relish so, her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of her continual distress and frustration. I do not have to care for her, I get to. It is a high honor to care for so wonderful a person. McCulkin's love for his wife was centered around delight for who she was, not for anything she contributed. Because how could she? Alzheimer's left her without speech, without motor function or the ability to walk. But in his care and delight for her and her helpless estate, he found that his love for her reminded him of God's love for us, who are helpless and desperately needing his care. We will never know what it means to enjoy God until we know how much he enjoys us. While holding Muriel at the airport before boarding the plane, when she was feared with the most anxiety and fear and terror, he held her as she cried. And a woman sitting across the stall in the chairs said to him, I wish someone could love me the way you love her. And for all of us, whether we are single or married, that's our same heart's cry. I wish someone could love me the way McQuilkin loves his wife. And the good news is that there is someone, and he has loved us better than that. Do you remember how I said that marriage is God's sneaky way of getting you crucified? Well, marriage was God's sneaky way of getting himself crucified for you, for God's unfaithful harlot bride, the bride that goes onto the streets, you and I, not only are we seduced by lust, but we partake. We go out and we seduce too. He came, he loved, so that we could crucify him, so that in turn, we can be crucified by, with him and transformed by his love. God is love. We can only love by trusting that we are loved. And we will never understand full love in marriage until we understand that Christ died to make you and I beautiful. This is the ultimate painting by the divine painter himself. 
to portray his glory and his love and his beauty in a way that it's not a way for us to lust after him, but a way to portray his divine love in the highest estate. God loves us. He died not to make you his sheep, but his lover. He lost us. He came to win us back, to win back our hearts. God came as this, unsightly, marred, destroyed, flayed apart, and crushed to show us real beauty in this world. Beauty that is not found in the lust of the flesh or in the body, but love of the heart. Let's pray. And I'm just going to invite you, as we go into a time of prayer, um, yeah, it's, it's, not a, it's not a comfortable topic. It's not uh, one that we always want to hear because it requires honesty and introspection. Maybe there are parts that we don't agree with in what Scripture says. But let's just ask for the Holy Spirit to reveal to us, to speak truth to where we have heard lies for so long. We all struggle with lust, with sexual morality. And this morning, like, God wants to collide head on with that area. God is declaring total war on the areas of your heart to reclaim that which is taken. And for you, can you find a place in your heart to repent with lust, with sexual sin? Because if not, it's gonna, this sapling is going to grow into a full-grown strangler vine. It will kill us. It will take from us and rob from us so much more than we can even offer. And so I want to invite you to invite the Holy Spirit into the realms and the parts of your life, of your love, that's dominated by lust for too long. That God wants to bring healing and redemption. That's his business. His whole process, all through scripture, all that he wants to do is bring back his people, you and I, to himself. And for him is to eradicate that which is, is not, that separates us from God. So take some time to pray, to name, to repent of that which keeps you crippled and away from God. And then I'll close us in prayer. Jesus, we confess that it is so hard and it's so difficult and it's frustrating to be have given these desires innately that's beautiful and good, but to have it so corrupted and to come out in ways that are perverted and shameful and make us feel guilty and, and ugly and at the, at the cost of viewing sex as something that's a curse, not a gift. But God, thank you for your word that you give to us the book of Proverbs that explicates the wisdom about how to deal with lust and, and what the right definition of the wisdom of sex is. God, you've given us instructions and a way out, and that's through your son. 
would you help us to remember the word, to fight sin, to fall deeper in love with you, and ultimately to know that we are fully known by you, fully loved. You are not disappointed with our shame and our history of sexual sin or that which of sexual abuse or trauma that was done to us. It doesn't disappoint you. But you look upon us with pride about the journey we've taken to get to this point. And your desire is for healing and for wholeness no, far, no matter how far we are from your truth and from your love. God, there are all of us in here have been marred and broken by sexual sins, by sexual sins that we have done or done to us. But God, your grace is so much greater. It's so much fuller and it encompasses all of all of our mess. Jesus, your love is one that is more powerful than than the damnation and the curse and the damage that sexual sin and lust has over our lives. You are so much more powerful than that and you want to begin a new work in us. You have bought us back and redeemed us to make us a new creation. So God, would you help us to buy into that truth, to lean upon those promises, to know fully that you love us and delight in us, that you take pleasure in us. So God, we pray that we can leave today with the assurance that you want to make us whole and that you want to bring to us into greater intimacy with you through sex and pleasure and delight and beauty. Thank you for showing us that beauty is not in the outward appearance from the flesh, but it's in the very love that you gave for us. In Jesus' name we pray.